This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So this week is marks the anniversary of uh, the conquest of Yerushalayim, the, the at least the east, east side of, the, of Jerusalem by the Israelis in 1967, the Six-Day War, which was a tremendous miracle. We must never deny that the, the Six-Day War was one of the biggest miracles. I'll tell you, one of the biggest miracles I've witnessed in my life. And thank God I was alive to witness. I was a little kid. And I remember... The teachers were all trembling. What's going to happen? NASA's going to throw us into the sea. Israel, they were digging graves all over the place. Thousands of people are going to be killed. And uh, during the first days of the war, we were hearing all the, all the information. The, the Arabs are invading, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Syrians. And then six days later, it was all over. And we wake, woke up and it's a big miracle, tremendous miracle. And uh, we heard the voice over the radio, Yerushalayim Biyadenu, Baruch Hashem, Yerushalayim Yerakodesh is in our hands. But still, it's not, as, as we know. It's part of it is, <laughs> most of it is. <laughs> but, you know, it's still a long way to go. Bezrat Hashem will be there for the next miracle, Bezrat Hashem. So anyway, I want to talk today about Yerushalayim Yerakodesh, the Jewish, Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem. Our roots, uh, Jewish roots, which is not mentioned enough today. Unfortunately, people don't talk about it enough. The roots of the Jewish people to Yerushalayim, Yerak Kodesh. We know Yerushalayim is a very old city. It goes back to the early Bronze Age, the Copper Age, the Bronze Age, 3000 BCE. It goes back, the origins of Yerushalayim go back 3000 BCE. Excavations have revealed the settlement existed on the site south of the Temple Mount. And uh, the name known in its earliest form is Yerusalem. Yerusalem is probably a Western Semitic origin. Apparently means the foundation of Shalem. And Shalem could be another word for God. We know that you're not allowed to say the word Shalom in the bathroom. Until today, Jewish law is you're not allowed to say the word Shalom in the bathroom. If someone's name is Shalom, you're not allowed to say it in the bathroom. You're not allowed to say Shalom Aleichem in the bathroom. Why? Shalom is a kinui. It's a nickname for God. Shalom is a nickname for God. So Yerushalem. Shalem is the word Shalom. Shalem is God's name. Interesting. People don't realize the city of God. Well, the city of peace, but the city of peace is also the city of God because where there's peace, God rests. Where there is peace between husband and wife and other places, Hashem's presence rests. So Yerushalem, the city of peace or the city of God or the foundation of Shalem, the city, the foundation of Hashem. The city and its earliest rulers uh, were Egyptians. Uh, the Egyptians actually mentioned it uh, in texts going back, you look this up, uh, 1900 to 1800 BCE. And again, the 14th century uh, contains a passage from the city's ruler, Abdi Keba, or Abdu Keba. This is before, way before the Arabs came along, requiring the Egyptian help against the invading Habiru. I don't know if the Habiru were the Hebrews. We don't know, but it's interesting that the Habiru were mentioned. Some people say this is the ancient Hebrews, but it doesn't look like that. We don't have any records of the Habiru making a war with, uh, with uh, Yerushalayim at that time. But we're going to come to that. And uh, since the 10th century BCE, Yerushalayim has been the center of Jewish life for the Jews. So the 10th century BCE. This is very important to know. Yerushalayim has been a Jewish center since the 10th century BCE. 10th century BCE, we're going to talk about it. However, we do have traditions going back way before that. In fact, our traditions go back to Adam. Our traditions 
We go back to Adam. It's brought down by the Rambam. It's a very interesting Rambam. It's in Hilchot Beta Bechira, which is the laws of the temple. And in chapter two of the Beta Bechira, I want to go through this very important Rambam, who quotes many different Midrashim. Now, it's interesting, Rambam doesn't quote Midrash very often. This is one of the places that Rambam quotes Midrash to tell us the origins of the Temple Mount, going back in history to right the beginning of creation. Right, the sixth day of creation where Adam was created. It says Adam brought a, an offering to God. Now, this is not mentioned in the Torah. Torah does not say Adam brought an offering to God. The Torah does say that Cain and Hebel, Cain and Abel, brought offerings to God. And we're going to see the Ramam quotes Midrash that says that was exactly on the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount Yushalayim. The offerings Adam brought to God, the offerings that Cain and Hebel, Cain and Abel brought to God, the offerings that Noah, we find that when Noah came out of the ark, we're going to talk about that as well, Bezrat Hashem, were on the Temple Mount. In fact, according to the Midrash, Adam was created from earth, from the site of the Temple Mount. Adam was created from the earth, from the site of the Temple Mount. Adam was created from that earth. So when we go to the Bed of Midrash and the offer sacrifice, exactly the same location of the creation of man. Amazing Midrash. I just want to read this Rambam to you word for word so everyone will have this. It's a very important Rambam. I want you to look it up. If you have it, you can look it up today on the internet. Very important Rambam. The laws of the temple. Chapter 2. And over there, he starts in Halacha 1. He talks about the place where the altar was. Now, what's interesting is that you don't need a temple to bring sacrifices. Uh, not all sacrifices were animal sacrifices. There were sacrifices of flour. Flour offerings, the Koban Mincha. Uh, we're going to see what's going to happen when the temple is rebuilt. But you don't need a temple to bring offerings. That's what the Rambam says. You need a mizbeach. You need an altar to bring offerings. You don't need a temple. So the Rambam says the, it has to be exact. The altar's location has to be exact. And we're not allowed to change it forever. We're never allowed to change the location of that altar on the Temple Mount. And that's one of the questions, halachic issues today, is where is the site of the altar? We don't know exactly. Uh, this hypothesis it's exactly where the Dome of the Rock is. The Dome of the Rock, according to a lot of opinions, is the site of the altar. It's not the site of the Holy of Holies. It is the site of the Mitzbeach. We don't know for sure now. I don't know. Um, but we do know a few things. That's, that's a problem. Well, it's one of the problems. We don't know exactly where the site of the, of the Mitzbeach is. Otherwise, technically, we can bring offerings today. And, but you can only bring offerings which are sacrificial offerings for the community, not individuals. Individuals cannot bring offerings because we are all in a state of defilement. And defilement is only allowed for communal offerings. You can break the state of defilement for communal offerings because it does not have to be tahor, the coin does not have to be tahor to bring communal offerings. So, for example, the Korah Vesah is a communal offering to be brought in a state of impurity. So communal offerings can be brought in a state of purity. Why? Because the rabbis say, if the whole community is defiled, there's no laws of defilement and purity. Interesting. So we do need a Mizbeach. We don't have a Mizbeach. So Raman says the place, the location of Mizbeach is critical for the functioning of the altar and the sacrifices. And this is a Mizbeach. It's called the Mizbeach HaOla. It's called the Mizbeach of the Ola, which is the burnt offering. Although not all offerings were burnt, as we know, uh, there's Korban Khatat, the sin offerings, which were 
which parts of it, the parts that you don't normally eat, the fats were burnt, and the rest was eaten by the owner. There were other offerings which were eaten by Kohanim. The shlamim, all different kinds of shlamim were eaten in Yerushalayim. They don't have to be eaten on the Temple Mount. They have to be eaten in the place of Yerushalayim. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the laws of sacrifices just to point out where was the offerings brought on this Mizbeach, on the Temple Mount. And what is our tradition regarding this? The Rambam says, This is a place, the site where Yitzhak Avinu was tied up by Abraham on the altar, or nothing happened to Yitzhak, Yitzhak was tied up and untied and brought down. He was the Akedah, that's the Akedah, famous Akedah, the binding of Yitzhak, in Parsha Lech Lecha, uh, sorry, in Parsha Bayera. And that is the site of Har Moria. I'm going to go through the sources. That's where Shlomo Melech built the first temple on Arab Moria, the site of Akedat Yitzhak, the Ramam says. And it's a site that David Amelech bought the field from Aravna Hachiti. Aravna Hachiti, it says David Amelech bought this field. He paid good money. It's interesting. The three places that Jews paid money for uh, in Israel, which the Bible actually tells us explicitly, Hebron, Abraham buys the site of Machpelah, which is today this uh, massive building that Herod the Great built, or Herod not so great built, <laughs> depends uh, your perspective on Herod, but you cannot deny the beautiful buildings Herod built. One of the beautiful buildings was the second part of the second temple, when he rejuvenated the second temple, rebuilt the second temple. Uh, but he also built this Machpelah, this massive monument over the cave. We don't we can't see the cave today. The cave is under this, this beautiful building, this massive building Herod built which is used as a mosque uh, by the uh, Muslims. And it's also used today, thank God, we have access today, which we never had for hundreds of years. Jews never had access. We could just stand on the seventh step of uh, Machpelah. Today, you have the Israeli soldiers there, Baruch Hashem, you can go in, except for Fridays. Fridays, it's reserved for Muslims as their holy day. Every other day of the week, usually, usually, except for Ramadan, probably, Jews are allowed to go in and they have their own, we have our own prayer halls, Hashem, and they have their own prayer So it's divided today between Jews and Muslims. It was bought by Abraham Avinu, Abraham, when he wanted to bury his, his beloved wife, Sarah, by Machpelah's cave. Today is this massive building. You don't see it in Hebron. And uh, then we find that Yaakov Avinu buys Shechem, the city of Shechem, which today, again, is a terrific boiling point of uh, Arab uh, nationalism against the Jews. So Shechem, again, something which uh, Jews bought with money, good money, in the Bible, and we had denied access to it. So Shechem, Nablus, uh, and number three is the Temple Mount, which it says David Amelech, King David, bought with good money from Aravna Acheti, the Hittites, and again, it's the, these are the three locations we bought with actual money, we find it explicitly at the Torah, in the, in the Tanakh, these three sites were bought, and these are three sites which uh, we have been denied access for countless years. And even today, there's big machloket on these three sites, big debates and denial of access to Jews on these three sites, but even though it's, it's explicit that we bought it with good money. Anyway, let's move on. The Rambam says, so that's the site. Uh, Jerusalem the Mount of Moriah, which we have to talk about, what is the origin of the name Moriah? Um, one of the big questions we have is why does the Torah 
the five books of Moses not mention Jerusalem by name. It tells you to you know, talk about it. Okay, so remind me to talk about that. Why is Jerusalem not mentioned in the Torah by name? There's only a slight uh, mention that we're going to talk about as well, but there's no actual. So there's a beautiful Rambam. The Rambam says that the location of this holiest place to Judaism was not expressed in the Torah, because otherwise the nations of the world would never have allowed us to enter it. They would have built a fortress over there and thrown us out, right? So it's interesting that it was hidden. This it was a secret hundreds of years till King David bought the site and King Solomon built the temple. This, the location of the holiest place on earth for Jews was a, a secret, Ramon says. So it was only alluded to in the Torah. I'm going to go through the allusions in the Torah. So he says, It was a tradition in the hands of everyone that the place, the site that King David and, and King Solomon built the altar and eventually the first temple in this uh, threshing floor of Arabna, the Chiti, that they built, that they bought, was the same location of the altar that Abraham built and sacrificed, or nearly sacrificed Isaac on. And that was the place that Noah built an altar and sacrificed when he came out the ark after the flood. This was the altar that Cain and Hevel also sacrificed upon all on the Mount Moriah, what we call Mount Moriah, uh, the Temple Mount in Yushalayim. And similarly, then he says, boy, Kriv, Adam Rishon, we said there's no source for this in the Torah, Adam Rishon brought the sacrifices, but this is a Midrash, he quotes the Midrash, Ramam doesn't normally quote Midrash, but again, you see how important this was, the Ramam to specify Yushalayim was a site that we owned for countless years. Now, even though you say Adam wasn't a Jew, but we are the ones who say that Adam was the forerunner of humanity. So we are setting our claim based on our descendancy from Adam. Adam, our forefather, no one else called him our, our forefather until the Quran was written many years later. Uh, or the Christians came along and adopted our Old Testament. No one called Adam the forefather of humanity till we did. And we said, Adam, our forefather, built the altar on Mount Moriah and its ours. Noah, our forefather, kind and heaven. Well, we're not descended from Cain or Hebel, we're descended from Seth, Rashet, the third son of Adam. Maybe a bit of Cain uh, as well. If you say Noah's wife was from Cain, maybe, probably is. Um, it depends who her father was. was uh, she was Naama, and Naama was the sister of Tubal Cain, uh, who was descended from Cain, of Cain. So if we're descendants of Naama from Tubal Cain, then we're also descendants of Cain. So anyway, so we are claiming this, uh, the Rambam's quotes, this is a very unusual Midrashim, to show that we have rights in the Temple Mount going back thousands of years, at least to the time of Abraham. For sure, time of, of Isaac. And we're going to come to Jacob because that's brought down in the Torah explicitly, nearly. And then he says that uh, the altar has to be over there. And this altar that Moses made and that Solomon made, and uh, eventually it's going to be rebuilt, are going to be exactly the same measurements as uh, the altars that were built by them. So we have to make the altar the same measurement, exactly what Moses built and what Solomon built. That's going to be the measurements of the altar exactly, but it's going to be in the same location which we talked about. Okay, so let's go uh, a bit forward and continue. So Urusalem. A very old name. We're going to see it's brought down in the Torah, the word Shalem. 
or which is Shalom or uh, Shalem or foundation of peace, Jerusalem, the city of peace, city of God. So it's a very old city. And the Bethesda house is the 10th century BC, a thousand years before the Romans. A thousand, we have to emphasize this. A thousand years before the Romans came along, 1600 years before there was Islam. 1600 years before Islam, the Jews were on the Temple Mount. The Jews had the city of Jerusalem. Yes, let's say that again. 1600 years before Islam was founded by Muhammad, the Jews, King David was alive. King Solomon built the temple. Now, this is being disputed today by the, by the Muslims. Unfortunately, it's, you can't dispute this is historical fact. Uh, there were two temples and, uh, on the mount, uh, which were destroyed eventually by, the first one was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. We'll talk about the dates. We'll go through all the history. And the second one was destroyed by the Romans, but on that mount were two temples. And we have all the archaeological evidence. You can go there and see the stones of the temple Right there, it's all been unearthed. You have the temple, we have the Wailing Wall, which is part of the, the holding wall of the temple. And now they unearthed all the four walls around the Temple Mount. All the four walls are unearthed. You can go today and see the mikvahs, all the mikvahot, which were built around the temple. For the, you, you can see the steps going up into the temple. You can see Robinson's Arch and uh, the street, which Herod built under, around the temple for the Jews to go. And got the temple, everything's been unearthed. You cannot deny it. I don't know how they deny it. So it's in black and white. It's right there. You can go and see the stones that are Herod. You cannot mistake the stones of Herod. You know, they have this uh, edge around them, the edging, beautiful edging around like uh, a picture frame. And you cannot, and you see the massive stones at the foundation of these walls. They were 30 ton stones. You can't move them. They were stones going back to. King Solomon and King David, the massive stones, the walls of, of the temple. So the massive, massive stones, unbelievable. Then you can go around, you can see the mitbah of the Koyanim. I was there for a rabbinical conference. You can't go this normally. I was taken in there. I was privileged. I was one of the privileged few to see this, this the old mikvahot, which are in the temple tunnels. The temple tunnels, you can go and see. And there's mikvahot over there, especially for Koyanim. So on one side of the temple now, you'll see um, built outside for the, the masses. And inside this is special reports, especially for the Ghani. Amazing. Anyway, there's plenty of evidence of the temple's existence. Don't have to go through this. But I just want to emphasize this is 1,600 years before the advent of Islam, 1,000 years before the advent of Christianity. The temple now was in our hands. And under King David, we're going to talk about history even before that. So Adam built the altar there. Cain and Hebel, Cain and Abel built altars there. They offered offerings over there. Noah built altars there. And uh, we're going to see now uh, Abraham. He offered up Isaac and built the altar there. Baruch Hashem wasn't necessary. But he, uh, he tied him up on the altar, Akidah. And then we're going to see Yahu Abinu. So let's just go through the sources very quickly. So the first source is in the Torah explicitly. Where it does talk about Cain and Abel have offering, offerings to God, but it doesn't say what exactly happened. So I've got to go now to Cain and Hebel, uh, to Noah. And Noah, it says, came out of the ark. He comes out of the ark and he built an altar to God. He took every clean animal, every clean bird, and off, burnt offerings on the altar. Okay, so here the commentary brings down 
The commentary, if you look at the art scroll, Hamash on page 39, he quotes this Rambam we just quoted. Uh, there was a tradition, the altars of David and Solomon of Abraham, where he found Isaac of Noah, of Cain and Heaven of Adam, were all in the same place. Mount Moriah, the site of the temple in Jerusalem. So that's number one, is the source of Noah's altar. Move on. Ah, here we have an, an interesting, very interesting, nothing related to the altars, that, kings, uh, that Abraham fought a war. Now it says that uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew, and brother-in-law, Sarah's, uh, Sarah's brother. Uh, Lot was uh, Abraham's nephew from his brother, Haran. And Lot was the brother of Sarah. And Sarah and Lot come back with Abraham from Haran. They go to move to Israel with Abraham. And Lot eventually moves away from Abraham. Their values did not uh, were not in conjunction. And Lot had to move away from Abraham or vice versa. They moved away from each other. Lot moved to Sodom. And city of Saddam was captured by the four kings, the four kings, the First World War. This is the first, actually, First World War, not the World War we know about in 1914. This is the First World War, which was uh, about 4,000, nearly 4,000 years ago. First World War between the four kings and the five kings, and the four kings come and they, they capture all these cities that rebelled against them. And one of the cities was Saddam, and they take Lot captive. And Abraham goes with his 318 men. And he goes and makes war with these four kings and he beats them. Tremendous victory, a miraculous victory. And he brings back Lot and he brings back all the, the captives that were taken by these four kings from Sodom. And who goes to greet him? It says, Machitzedek, king of Shalem. Here we are, Shalem, Yerushalem, Shalem. This is the first time explicitly mentioned part of the word of Yerushalayim is Machitzedek, the king of righteousness. Machitzedek who the rabbis identify as Shem ben Noach, Shem, the son of Noach. Shem, we know Noach had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. And Shem, not, not the oldest one, Rashi says, he wasn't the oldest, but he was put first because he was the most important. He was the righteous one. Shem came to Yushalayim. He had a school, yeshiva, in the first yeshiva in Yushalayim was the yeshiva of Shem and Ever, who was the grandson of Shem. I think it was the grandson, the great-grandson of Shem. They had the yeshiva in Yerushalayim, and that is the first mention of the Torah explicitly of the word Shalem, which is Yerushalayim, the Malchitzedek, the king of righteousness, who the rabbis identify as Shem, the son of Noah, was the king of Shalem. He was the king of Yerushalayim, interesting, and he was the priest of Hashem, the Most High. He was identified as a worshiper of God. God the Most High, which means the God of all the other pagan gods. He's the God, the only one God. So Shem continued the, in the tradition of his father, Noah, worshiped God. He had a yeshiva in Yerushalayim, according to our tradition. But here the Torah tells us explicitly, this is in chapter 14 of Genesis. You can look it up, chapters 14, uh, in verse 18. And uh, verse 18, Machitzele, king of Shalem, brings out bread and wine to Abraham. Abraham just came back from this war against the four kings. He's bringing back all these freed captives, including his brother-in-law, uh, stroke uh, uh, nephew, Lot. And here is, Abraham must be famished. He just fought a battle. We don't know how long it lasted. And he was victorious. And Machitzedek, the king of Shalem, is bringing him bread and wine to sustain him after the battle. 
He was a priest of God, the most high, the Torah tells us. And he blessed Abraham, whose name at that time was Abram. Still wasn't changed yet. Blessed is Abram of God, the most high, maker of heaven and earth. You can't confuse that with any other God. There's only one God who made heaven and earth. That's uh, our Hashem. Hashem made heaven and earth. And he blessed Abraham. And he, and he said, who has delivered your foes into your hand. And Abraham gave Malachitzedek, the priest of the high God, a tenth of everything. Here we find one of the first, probably the first reference to a tithe of a tenth. It's where the first uh, tithe came from, this idea of Maaser, this idea of giving Sedaqah to give to the priest. And eventually became Truma to the priest and Maaser to the Levite. And here we have Abraham is giving from the spoils of war to Malchitzet, the king of Shalem, who is the priest of the Most High. And here we have a reference, a clear reference to the city of Shalem, which later on became known as Yerushalem. Yerushalem, or the word Yeru could be for the word Yera, which is fear. It's an awesome place, the place of God. Shalem can be God, it's a nickname for God. Shalom, he said, the fear of God, the, the place called the fear of God, which is where you could you could feel the presence of God the most in the world. The presence of God in the world we feel the most. I'm going to talk a bit about, more about that. And, uh, and he gave him a blessing. So, so Malchi Tzedek, the commentary says over here, article page 65, after meeting Abraham in the valley of Shaveh, the king of Sodom escorted him to the city of Shalem, Jerusalem, which they met Malchi Tzedek, whom the sages identify as Shem, son of Noah, he was called Malchitzerik because he was the king of the future site of the temple, the home of righteousness. He was the king of righteousness. What does that mean? The future site of the temple, which is called righteousness. As the most honored of Noah's children, Shem was made the priest of God in Jerusalem. The Ramban, Nachmanides, tells us. And he brought bread and wine to Abraham and his battle-weary warriors, the customary refreshments after battle. And uh, he was the priest of the high God. And uh, that's the Rambam. Okay. So the sages derived. The Malchitzer did not pass the priesthood down to his heirs. It was stripped from him, his heirs, and given to Abraham. Even though Abraham was a descendant of Malchitzer, Abraham was a direct, we are Jews, our direct descendants of Shem, the son of Noah, but many generations removed. Abraham was 10 generations. The Mishnah says, Berkeyavot. Ten generations from Noah. So he's nine generations from uh, Shem. So Abraham was nine generations from Shem. In Jewish law, that's enough to make a person not related. Right? So if you're four generations or more away from someone, you're not related to someone. That's uh, Torah law, but rabbinical law you are. Okay, so, um, okay, so that's uh, interesting halakha. We learn from there that Hashem took away the priesthood from Shem and gave it to someone even better. Who is that? Abraham himself. We Jews inherited the priesthood of the world. We are the priests of the world. We are Mamlechet Kohanim, as the Torah tells us in Parashat Yitro. We are Mamlechet Kohanim Begoy Kadosh. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's why the world holds us to a higher standard, unfortunately. But we are meant to be a kingdom of priests to the world. We are priests not just to ourselves. Every single Jew should be a priest of the world. What does that mean? Carry the name of God and spread it into the world and give a good role model. So that's a very important idea. Hashem removed it from Mokhitzerik. Heirs from it, the heirs of Mokhitzerik. Even though we're going to see Mokhitzerik still alive, time of Jacob. Uh, nevertheless, eventually it went to the hands of, well, who was Shem's descendants anyway. There's still descendants of Shem. And it's passed down to the sons of Abraham. 
okay, to Levi eventually from the sons of Jacob, the priesthood of the world. That's a very, very, very big title, but it's a very hard, hard uh, responsibility and heavy responsibility, which is a heavy burden. Everyone expects more from the priests of God to the world. Okay. Now we come to the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it happened after these things. Pasha Vayera, chapter 22, verse 1. This is the 10th trial of Abraham, according to most accounts. And he says, Abraham, Abraham, by Yomer Hineni, he says, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, the one who you love, Yitzhak, beautiful Midrash. Take your son, Abraham says, which son? I have two sons. The one you, the only, uh, the only one. Okay, he says, they're both the only ones, both the only ones to their mothers. The one you love. Oh, the one you love. Oh, I love them both. Yitzhak, take Yitzhak and go to the land of Moriah. Now we come to a different name for the temple site. It's called the land of Moriah. Well, you can say it's two words, Moriah, the mountain of Yah, which is God. Or you can say Moriah is from the language of teachings. What's the name? Of, how do you say a teacher in Hebrew? Morah. More or Morah or Torah. Torah is teachings. Eretz Moriah is the land of teachings. That's where the Torah will come from. Ki mitzion Torah. From Zion will come forth the Torah. Moriah is another name for Yerushalayim. It's another name for Zion. Okay? And Moriah means teachings or the mountain of fear of God. Hashem Yireh. Bahar Hashem Yireh. The mountain of God. I will be seated here. So he says, it's like land. Eretz HaMoriah. The land of Moriah. This is the article, page 101. Yerushalayim. The sages explain Yerushalayim was so named because Hora'ah, teachings, went forth from it to the world. So teachings came out of Yerushalayim. Whatever the nations know about religion, at least monotheism comes from Yerushalayim. You have to emphasize that. Whatever the nations of the world knows about monotheism comes from Judaism. And the center of Judaism is not Mount Sinai, it's Yerushalayim, Haram Moriah, the Mount Moriah, which is named because of Hora'ah. Teachings went forth from it to the world. Onkelos renders Moriah. Onkelos was a, a convert to Judaism at the time of the Romans and the student Rabbi Kiva, and he renders this translation of Eretz Moriah, the land of divine service. So Moriah, he learns after the word more. More is one of the spices of the 11 spices of the Ketorit, of the incense. So Moria is the land of myrrh, of myrrh, one of the spices of incense, and the incense was used in the service of God. So it's the land of service of God. That's his translation. So we have to find another name for Shalem, another name for Yerushalayim, another name for uh, is Shalem is Moria. Another name used in the Torah is Eretz HaMoria, the land of Moria, the land of teachings. The next, uh, or the next source I have is Yaakov Avedu, Jacob. Jacob is running away from his brother Esau. That's what we seem to be doing. Uh, Jews have run away from his brother Esau for centuries, okay? So Esau and Yaakov don't get along. He's running away from his brother Esau and he runs away. And where does he go? Okay, so he says over here, he cuts Yaakov, he goes to a certain place and he goes to sleep over there. But he cuts Yaakov and he wakes up from his sleep he has this dream of the ladder going up to heaven. He sees God up on top of the ladder. He says, when he wakes up from his sleep, he says, God is in this place. 
I didn't know that God was in this place. By Yirad, he was scared. How awesome is this place? So he said, this could be another reason for Har HaMoriah. The land of Moriah, the land of fear. The land where it's awesome. It's awesome. This is the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. <laughs> what does that mean, a gateway to heaven? The rabbis say there's just like there's a temple down below, there's a temple above. In other words, just like you go through customs when you go through the American Canadian border, which is one of the longest uh, unguarded borders in the world, the friendly border, it's called the friendly border. If you go through that border, border control, so on the one side, you have the uh, American border control. On the other side, you have the Canadian border control. They get along with each other, waving to each other. And you show your American passport, and they wave you through, or a Canadian passport, they wave you through either way. And that's very similar, the rabbi say, to the two temples. There's a temple below and a temple above. That is the gateway to heaven. Our prayers go to Yerushalayim to go through to the Shammai. Our prayers have to go. So that's why we face Yerushalayim when we pray. We're going to talk about that. When we, when we pray to God, we face Jerusalem. There's no other nation in the world that faces Yerushalayim when they pray to God, not even the Muslims who face Mecca. It's very important to, to note that. It's a very important note. No other nation in the world faces Jerusalem when they pray to God. We face Jerusalem based on this verse. That this is the gate to heaven. The gate to heaven goes through Yerushalayim. It's amazing. The gate to heaven goes through Yerushalayim. There's another Midrash that says the gate to heaven is Hebron. And that's why uh, Abraham picked Hebron to bury. So there's a whole discussion over there. Does it go to Yushalayim first and then Hebron, the prayers? <laughs> but anyway, bottom line is we face Yushalayim when we pray. That is the gate to heaven. I just want to quote you. This is the Art Scroll, page 147, 146, 147. Jacob had experienced the prophecy without having prepared himself for it. He realized that the place was so holy, it was conducive to prophecy. Rabbi Vadia is Sforno, the Sforno, the great Sforno, great uh, middle-aged, uh, middle, middle, middle-ages uh, sage. He bemoaned he had not known this, or he had not dared to sleep there, Rashi says. Alternatively, had he known, he would have prepared himself so that he could have had the vision even while he was awake. says, This is the house of God. This is not an ordinary place, but a sanctuary of God's name, a place suitable for prayer. Furthermore, it is the gate of heaven, meaning it is the site from which man's prayers go up to God. Midrashically, the heavenly temple corresponds to the earthly temple. So that Jacob was at the place that is the most propitious for prayer and service. So this is the link between the two domains, heaven and earth meet at the temple mount. Heaven and earth meet at the temple mount. And that's something to remember. Our prayers go through there. That's the gate to heaven. Now, the rabbis say when the temple below is destroyed, the temple above was also destroyed. And there's also some midrashim when a Jew does a mitzvah. He's building a rock in the temple. He's building a wall in the temple or, or a brick in the temple. That's referring to the temple above. And we do mitzvah, we're building a temple above. You know, Rashi says an amazing thing in Masechet in, Sukkah. He says the bed, I mean, that will fall from heaven in a fire. And then the Ramah says, no, Mashiach will build the temple. So there's a stira, but there's a contradiction between Rashi and Rambam. And I heard a beautiful explanation of this, right? Rabbi Shlomo Amar, chief rabbi of Israel, former chief rabbi of Israel, and now chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. He said there really is no contradiction. Rashi is talking about the heavenly temple. 
And Rambam is talking about the earthly temple. The earthly temple will be built by Messiah. The heavenly temple will fall from above. So we have to remember there's two temples, which are like the two customs houses between the two domains. One for this world, one for the next world. And there are two sections, the, Jew, the, uh, the heavenly section, the earthly section, the earthly temple and the heavenly temple. And they're going to they're gonna combine at one time. You go to the temple, you're entering a different domain. It's a domain where space and time meet. Everything meets over there. And that's where, uh, where the Jews bowed down on Yom Kippur. It says, even though they were all stuck together like sardines, like the New York uh, NYC uh, commuter train uh, and rush hour. I don't know what it's like now, but it was at one time. It was stuck like sardines. Or you go to London, commuter train stuck like sardines. Or an Israeli buses. I was just on a bus today in Israel, in Yerushalayim stuck like sardines in rush hour and all of a sudden on Yom Kippur when everyone has to bow down when they hear God's name from the Kohen Gadol there's room for everyone to bow down six feet amazing so space does not apply in the Temple Mount it's above space so that's a very important idea and there are 10 miracles on the Temple Mount I'm going to go through them now but it's a holy area we see over here that yeah, we get this from earthly from Yaakov Avinu Jacob when he sleeps there Says, This is the house of God. This is, this is the gateway to heaven. Now, it's interesting, as we said before, Yushalayim is not explicitly mentioned in the Torah. But it does mention that, and Deuteronomy in a few places it says, The place that I will choose, you will take your sacrifice to the place I will choose. That's repeated a few times in Devarim. And the rabbis say that is all about the temple of Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. And in fact, there's a Midrashim, there's also a Midrashim. The David HaMelech was wondering where this place was. And he was very unhappy. He was trying to find out where this place was. He wanted to build a temple. And he asked Natan and Nabi. And they sit down together and they find this place. It's a place, the threshing floor of Aravna, the Hittite. David HaMelech goes and buys it. And straight away, Hashem tells Natan, tell David, he's not going to build it. Run back to David. It's middle of the night already. And run back to David and tell him he's not going to build it. His son's going to build it. And the countries ask why in the middle of the night to run back to David. And Hashem says, run back to David because David is a Zariz. He's quick to do mitzvot. He's already planning how to build a temple. He's going to build it tomorrow. He's going to start building tomorrow. He's going to start. <laughs> he doesn't wait around. David Melech, when he comes to the mitzvah, doesn't wait around, run back and tell him he's not going to build it. But that's when they figured out the exact site of the Temple Mount, which the Rambam tells us was the site where Jacob slept. That was a site where Abraham offered up the offering nearly Isaac, Isaac. That's the site of Noah's offering, the site of Melchizedek, uh, who was the king of Shalem. He was the king of that site, at least if you hold not in Shalem. And that's the site that uh, that's part of our heritage. That's our heritage going back 3,000 years of history, of very harsh Jewish history, through the Babylonian destruction and through the Roman destruction. It's our site. And we have the stones over there that our forefathers built around there. And probably the same site. If you go there, we're not allowed to, Jews are not allowed to go there and dig. You know, the, the wax dug. Tremendous holes over there. They built a whole new second floor underneath the Temple Mount. People don't know that. There's a whole floor underneath that they built as an overflow. Another mosque. One mosque is not enough for them. They built another mosque, a massive mosque underground. 
and they took all the garbage and threw it in the, in the pits outside Yushalayim, where the Jews were smart enough to go and sift, and they found many treasures from the time of the second temple and the first temple in the garbage that they had unearthed in the Temple Mount, unfortunately. Okay, I want to talk a bit more about that. So we have traditions going back to Adam, um, and Tzedek, and uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And in ancient times, the city was divided. The lower city to the east and the upper city to the west. The eastern section was referred to as Shalem, which is probably where Malchitzedek was the king of Shalem. While the upper section, which include the place of the altar, was called Moriah, Moriah. 340 years after the flood, Canaanite tribes. Now, this was a land that belonged to Noah. And this was a land that was set aside for his son, Shem. And, it's, and Shem, we know, stayed in Yerushalayim. But the whole area, the whole of Canaan was meant to be allocated for Shem and his descendants. Rashi says this in Kumash. The Canaanites came, they were descendants of Ham who were not meant to get that portion. They were meant to get the portion of Egypt and below Africa. And they stole this portion from the sons of Shem, the portion of Canaan, which was set aside for the sons of Shem. They stole it, Rashi says, and they took it over. And that's really set aside for us. And that's why we're not stealing it from Canaan. Canaan stole it from us. Canaan stole it from Shem. And we are reclaiming what belonged to us. Joshua reclaimed what belonged to us originally that they stole. And uh, the Bible report records that Noah blessed his son Shem, which indicated that Yerushalayim would be included in Shem's inheritance. Shem and his progeny lived in Yerushalayim, set up an academy there where the word of Hashem was taught. That's where Yaakov spent 14 years, it says. He actually has a whole uh, calculation of how old Yaakov was when he went to uh, see Laban. And when he gets married, he was an old man already. And part of that calculation was the 14 years he spent in the sheep of Shem and Ever in Yerushalayim. Okay, so we have over there this place, this, this land was allocated to the descendants of Shem. The Canaanites stole it, even though they were descendants of Ham. And eventually it came back to us. When Joshua controls the land, it comes back to us. However, the temple was not built yet. The Jews had a place called Shiloh. For about 400 years, offerings were offered in Shiloh. The Mizbeach was built in Shiloh. The Mishkan was rebuilt over there. Actually, it wasn't a Mishkan. It was, a wooden, it was stone walls with the roofing of the Mishkan over there in Shiloh until the time of Eli. Eli, we talked about in our history, in our section on Eli and Tanakh. And it was destroyed by the Philistines. And eventually, the, the, uh, the uh, Arona Kodesh moves in different places. And uh, it moves to Kiryat Sefer, which is today, you know, Telstone. And it moves to, uh, to North Irakoanim, which was eventually destroyed by King Saul. And then eventually got to uh, different places. And eventually David brings the altar. He brings the uh, Ark of God to a tent in Jerusalem. At the time of King David, it was in a tent in Jerusalem. Until King Solomon actually built this beautiful temple, the first temple. And that's when we have records of the temple being built about thousands BCE, 1000 BCE. So there, Shalomo Melech extends the city of Yushalayim. He builds his temple on the threshing floor of Aravna, the Yebusi, and he builds his palace next door. On King Solomon's death, the northern tribes seceded. You know, in time, Rechabon, who was the son of King Solomon, 
terrible tragedy that northern tribes, the ten northern tribes. Um, sorry, yes, Kiryat Yarim, Telstone, Kiryat Yarim. Sorry, yes, it's Kiryat Yarim that the uh, the the ark ended up in not not, not Kiryat Sefer. Mixed up, so <laughs> slight slight error. So Kiryat Yarim, which is Telstone today, and King David took it from Kiryat Yarim. He took it to Yerushalayim. Eventually, uh, another stop over there on the way, because that's where Uzzah tragedy was killed, right? When he's taking the ark, he touched the ark by mistake. He should have touched the ark before the fall. And he got, uh, why? Because we said, he talks about this, King David made a mistake. The ark has to be carried by Levites, not on a cart pulled by oxen. That was the way of the Philistines return the ark. But King David made a mistake. It was meant to be carried. Eventually, he rectified this mistake and he brought it to Shlein, carried by the Levites. No ark, no cart, no oxen. And it says, the ark carries those that carry it. So it looks like, what looks like the ark uh, being carried by Levites was really the ark carrying the Levites. The Levites sort of floating underneath it. I'd love to see this. Uh, anti-gravity. The ark was anti-gravity and anti-space because it took no space in the Holy of Holies. It says, if you measure the inside of the Holy of Holies and you measure the ark, you find there was no space taken by the ark apparently no space whatever that means the ark did not take up space wild so uh, that's what he said jerusalem the the holy of holies is uh, entrance to the next world entrance to the next world in fact when we pray because meant to pray shukhan says have kabana your prayers are going to to israel to shalayim to jerusalem to the bed of mikdash to the holy of holies on top of the kapot on top of the ark which is the covering of the ark between the two kruvim. That's where the prayers go up. And that's where the voice came to Moses. When Moses spoke to God, that's where the voice came out from in between the two cherubs, the two kruvim on top of the ark now. We don't have an ark there. It's all in our imagination. We are directing our prayers using meditation. So that's the power of meditation. We find the power of meditation. In our meditation, our temple is built. In our meditation, our prayers go right through the temple, through the Holy of Holies, the ark is there. It's going through on top of the ark between the cherubs. Bezrat Hashem, our prayer should be answered. So now let's go further down. On King Solomon's death, we said the northern kingdom seceded. And about 930 BCE, the Egyptian pharaoh uh, comes to sack the city of Yushalayim, followed by the Philistines and then the Arabians in 1850. And then the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, which was fighting the king of Judah, came and also tried to sack Yerushalayim came out in the, in the year 786 BCE. After Hiskiah, Hezekiah became king of Judah, he built new fortifications and an underground tunnel, and he put the spring, the Gihon spring, underground. Amazing feat of engineering. You can go and walk through this tunnel today if you don't mind walking through water. Uh, you don't walk on the water, you walk through the water, uh, and you can see the site where the two, two teams, the engineering teams, met. And they cut through the rock. And they met each other underground. That's amazing. Without GPS, it's amazing feat of engineering. They actually don't know how they did it. They measured everything accurately, and they finally met. They heard the bangs of the other team on one side and the bangs of this team on the other side. And they actually had, there's an inscription over there where the two teams met. So uh, eventually what happens is um, in 701, the Sanchelev of Assyria comes. And the Jews are forced to pay an amazing amount of tribute. But what happens is when he comes to Yushalayim, he 
camps outside. Tremendous miracle. 180,000 troops die that night. That's how Hezekiah, Hezekiah goes to sleep. He says, Hashem, there's no way I can fight the Syrians. You have to fight for them on my behalf. And Hashem does this miracle. A plague in the camp of the Assyrians. They die that night, except for the king and his two sons who run away, far away from Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was saved at that time. However, in 587 BCE, the city and the temple were completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Unfortunately, tragedy and the first captivity of the Jewish people, first exile started and we're taken to Babylon. Eight years later, Jerusalem was despoiled and its king uh, was, that's where we fast, uh, Gedalia, right? Fast the Gedalia, Tzitkiyahu first, and then Gedalia was killed eventually by other Jews. And then that was the end of the first commonwealth of Jews in Israel by the Babylonians. And uh, the exile ended in 538 BCE when Cyrus II, the great of Persia, who had overcome Babylon, permitted the Jews, led by Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of King David, back to return to Yerushalayim. The temple was restored in 515 BCE, despite the Samaritan, the good, bad Samaritans, we call them bad Samaritans, opposition, and the city became the center of a new state. Unfortunately, it was still under the Persian domination, so we were like, uh, we had a little bit of independence under Persian, we had to pay them taxes. But nevertheless, it was a peaceful period, hence no history written about it. So a period of 200, um, of 200 years of peace under the Persians. Jews paid tribute to the Persians until the period of Alexander the Great. The great Alexander, we love Alexander. And we named our children Alexander because he did not defile our temple. Alexander had respect for our temple. There's a famous story when he conquered Israel that Shimon HaTzadik, the high priest at that time, went to greet him. And he got off his horse and he bowed down to this high priest. And his warriors said, what's going on? Our king, you conquered all these countries. He bowed down to the Jewish high priest. He says, I see his face every day, every night before a battle. He comes and blesses me that I should win the battle. That's the miracle Hashem made. And because of that, Alexander treated us with respect. He treated the Jewish people with respect. And he did not defile our temple with the idols. He respected the traditions of Judaism until his death, where his generals took over and split his kingdom into three parts or four parts. And we were in a fight between the Egyptian Greeks and the Syrian Greeks, who's going to control Israel. He went backwards and forwards. And the Ptolemies and the Seleucids uh, fought over Israel until Antiochus IV, the Epiphanes, the madman, came and desecrated our temple of the Syrian Greeks. And then we had the, the, the Maccabean revolt um, to take back control of uh, Israel from the Greeks. 167 BCE, and then the Romans, right? the Jews invited the Romans in, obviously, to two kings, Aristobulus, and who was the other one? Aristobulus and his brother were fighting, and eventually they invite Pontius they invite this uh, Greek, uh, sorry, the Roman general to come um, and take control to make peace between them. Okay. And unfortunately, he came in and never left. That was a problem. So that was a problem. So from 41 to 44 CE, that's when Herod, Herod, sorry, Herod, uh, let's just see, 40 BCE, Herod, 
who was a friend of the Romans, was appointed by the Roman Senate to be a client king of Judea. So 41 BCE, and that's when he started his massive building program. He built these massive palaces all over Israel. Masada, uh, we said uh, Machpelah, his other palaces in Herodium and uh, other palaces. I can't, uh, there's too many to number. And uh, Akko, uh, and, uh, and finally he built the temple. He rebuilt the temple. No, he didn't build the temple. The temple was built already, but he rebuilt it to make the most magnificent structure in, ancient, in the ancient world. The Gemara says, whoever never saw the temple of Herod never saw a beautiful building in their lives. It was the most beautiful building. It's interesting that when that the Romans did not want to destroy it. They tried their best not to destroy it. Why? Because it was such a beautiful building. They wanted to leave the aesthetics. They wanted to aesthetics. They wanted to show the world what a beautiful building. However, the, the uh, Jewish resistance left them no choice. They had to destroy it to destroy the Jewish resistance. So Herod built the temple and he also built a royal palace, which was occupying, if you've ever been to the old city, it occupies pretty much the whole area of the Armenian quarter. The whole Armenian quarter was Herod's palace. Amazing. Imagine. The whole Armenian quarter was one palace, was Herod's palace. Uh, the new royal palace was strengthened by immense towers, integrated into the old Hasmonean walls, and the temple was defended by a new citadel. So the temple had its own walls, its own citadel. That's why it took so long to uh, defeat by the Romans. And Herod died in 4 BCE, succeeded by his son, Herod Echelaus, and subsequently deposed by the Romans in 6 CE and replaced by the first of the series of Roman procurators. And that's when JC was put to death under the Roman procurators. From 41 to 44 CE, the kingdom of Herod was reconstituted for its grandson, Herod Agrippas, who the Thomas says good things about. Uh, Agrippas, the king. And uh, unfortunately, when he died, the procurators returned, caused havoc in Israel, in Judea at that time. And in 66 uh, CE, the Jews rebel against Rome. And in 70 CE, the city was besieged, almost totally destroyed under the future emperor uh, Titus. And the temple, Herod's greatest achievement was reduced to ashes, unfortunately. Well, today you can go and see parts of it, which escaped because it was, they were buried underground. Today, they've been uncovered. Go see tremendous archaeology. The temple was, um, the pieces of the temple were used to build a palace for the Arab king. We're going to talk about that. Let's, let's try and get there. Okay. So on the side of the temple, the Romans plowed it over, it says, and they made it into a plowed field. That's the prediction. When Rabbi Kiva and the sages went there, they saw foxes coming out of the Holy Holy to where the site of the Holy Holy was. Obviously, they still knew where it was. They saw foxes coming out there and they started crying. And Rabbi Akiva stopped, said, don't cry. He was laughing. He said, we see the prediction of its destruction. Now we have the prediction of its rebuilding. Unfortunately, it's still taking thousands of years for the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. And uh, in 66, we said the Jews were building its Rome. In 70 CE, the city was destroyed by Titus and the temple was destroyed. By 130 CE, the city had been partially repopulated. And again, the Jews revolted under Bar Kokhva from 132 to 135 CE. Hadrian smashed everything again and decided he's going to change the name of Yerushalayim to, I hope I get it right, Alia Capitolina, 
and uh, he, he made his uh, Roman city, he made a new Roman city built on the ashes of the old Yerushalayim. And that's where Yerushalayim started losing its name. Unfortunately, he lost its name, just like Judea. He, he changed the name of Judea to Palestinia. That's where Palestine comes from, from the Romans. Uh, 135 CE, they changed the name of Judea because they had so much trouble with the Judeans, the Jews. We're called Jews because we come from Judea. Okay, the Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem are not recorded until the fourth century. That's when the Roman Empire converted to Christianity under Constantine the first, and the famous pilgrimage of his mother, St. Helena, who founded the whatever, and she started building these massive Christian shrines in Jerusalem, uh, later known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And furthermore, okay, I'm not going to go too much into that, but the Golden Age was brought to an end by the Persian invasion in which the inhabitants of Jerusalem were massacred and the churches destroyed. Through its long history, Jerusalem has been destroyed at least twice, besieged 23 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, and attacked 52 times. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. So don't quote me. Okay, this is Encyclopedia Britannica. The part of Jerusalem called the City of David shows first sign of settlement in the fourth millennium BCE. And in the shape of encampments of shepherds during the Canaanite period, 14th century BCE, Jerusalem was referred to as Urusalim on ancient Egyptian tablets. And during the Israelite period, significant construction activities began through the city in the 9th century BCE. We say 10th century BCE. 10,000 BCE. Is that possible? No. 1,000 BCE. 1,000 BCE. Okay, 1,000 BCE. That's uh, 3,000 years ago. Jerusalem's been in the hands of the Jews for 3,000 years, pretty much. Okay, so uh, what happened was, okay, then the back and forth between the Christians and the Muslims, they are fighting over Jerusalem. They had the Crusaders, and eventually the Christians were thrown out by the Salah al-Din. And uh, that's when the Muslims took over, but it, the different, different Muslims conquered at a different time, from the Egyptian Muslims and the Turkish Muslims. In 638, the Muslim Caliph Umar, the first entered Jerusalem, and discovered the Temple Mount in utter decay and disrepair. So what does he do? He builds his mosque right there. He saw the Temple Mount, the holiest site for Judaism. Listen, if you go through Israel, you'll find all the mosques are built on our holy sites. Everywhere they found a holy site, they built a mosque. So all our holy sites, all our prophets, their graves have been, mosques have been built on it. So can you imagine? In 638, that's when Islam started around 600 CE, the Muslim Caliph Umar I entered Jerusalem, discovered the Temple Mount and utter this decay and disrepair, and he repaired the site and he built the mosque over there. The Dome of the Rock was built over there. And I have a lot to talk about. I'm going to stop right here. We're out of time. Please join me next week. Same time, same channel. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.